Before we get into the meat of our text this morning, let's get our bearings. Uh, So I said earlier, this is a psalm of David, um, and it's a special kind of psalm. There are psalms of praise, of thanksgiving. This is called a maskil. Uh, it's a subtitle under, uh, under the title of your psalm. It says a masculine of David, or maybe instructions of David in your translation. And that gets at what the term means. Um, while we're not positive what masculine means, it's likely that this means that this is a teaching text. So Psalm 32 is a song of instruction written by King David. Now, David is not just lecturing us from the front of the classroom this morning. No, he's teaching the people of God from his own experience. So Psalm 32 is probably written in the same context of Psalm 51. And that context is the aftermath of David's affair with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. So David takes a woman, not his wife, gets her pregnant, tries to cover it up, it doesn't work, and then kills her husband. That's that's 2 Samuel, um, the first bit of that in a nutshell. And Many months after this episode, after the affair and the murder, David still hasn't confessed his sin. He's been living with it in secret. He hasn't confessed it to the Lord. It's affecting him and his leadership. And so, God appoints a man to come and confront David and his sin. This prophet, Nathan, comes to David and says, Hey, you have sinned. You need to repent. And only then does David confess his sin to the Lord. Now, it's in the aftermath of that confession that David writes Psalm 51. You probably have heard it before. It starts, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David goes on to pray for forgiveness from God for his sin, for restoration, and for renovation of his inward parts. And then David says in verse 12, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. So I see Psalm 32 as a pretty clear fulfillment of David's promise in that verse. David is teaching transgressors God's ways so that sinners would return to him. This is the author of our text this morning. This is a guy who has committed wicked and heinous sins. This is a man who has experienced the suffering of, that those sins caused. But this is also a man who's been restored by God and who has known and tasted the abundant mercy and steadfast love of the Lord. So David has been around the block, y'all. He knows something of what he's talking about, and God wants us to learn from his experience this morning. So what then would God have us learn from David's sin and his suffering and his repentance? Well, the, the, the big idea, the, the one summary sentence that encapsulates Psalm 32 is this. Confess your sin to God because it's blessed to be forgiven. Confess your sin to God because it's blessed to be forgiven. So this morning, we're going to take that big idea and kind of work from uh, back to front. We're going to look in, in four sections of this psalm. First, we're going to see the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. In verses 3 and 4, we're going to see the suffering of sin. Verses 5 to 7 show us the salvation that comes from confession and forgiveness. And finally, we see the promises of life with God in verses 8 through 11. Okay, that's where we're headed. Blessing, suffering, salvation, and promise. Now, uh, before we get into the text, one disclaimer. We're going to talk about sin a lot today. 
Uh, I'm not sure how that strikes you. I'm not sure if you're somebody who really doesn't like thinking about the bad things that you've done because it makes you feel kind of icky inside. You don't like to think about it. Or maybe you're to the other end of the spectrum and thinking about the, the sins that you've committed is all you can seem to do. And so you, both of you, would rather just check out this morning and not have to listen to this. Please don't check out. Our text is a text that's real about sin, but is also real about the mercy of our God. So we've got to look at that first before we can see God's forgiveness. Okay, so, so stick with me, stay with me, let's dive in. First, the blessing of forgiveness. Look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David starts off by announcing who, in God's economy, experiences the good life. That's what the word blessed gets at. That's the idea of it. It can literally be translated happy, but what makes us happy? What makes you happy? It's when you live the the way that you want to live, right? You're content and satisfied in life, and you're happy. So we can say that the biblical idea of blessedness is this. It's the state of well-being or contentment brought about from the life lived with God. That's what happiness is. That's what blessedness is, the state of well-being or contentment brought about from life lived with God. And this comes up all throughout the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. If you look at like a, a bar graph of this, which I coincidentally did this week, Psalms are all the way up. Okay, there, there are many, many expressions of blessedness in the Psalms. And it starts, the Psalter starts that way. Psalms 1 and 2 talk about the blessedness of the lawkeeper, the one who keeps God's law and takes refuge in him. But now, David is talking about the blessedness that's available to lawbreakers. So in describing this blessed one in in good old Hebrew poetic fashion, David uses three words to talk about what hinders our happiness, and then three words to talk about what brings about our happiness. So first, three words for what hinders our happiness. Those words are transgression, sin, and iniquity. What does each of these tell us about our rejection of God? Because that's what sin fundamentally is, right? It's, it's rejecting God in his way for our life. Well, first, transgression. Transgression refers to our rebellion against God. It gets at that part of our disobedience that's a rejection of God and his ways for us. The second word, sin, describes our relationship to God's Law. It gets at the idea of, of missing the mark or falling short of the standard that God has set for us. And finally, iniquity describes the effects that sin has on us. Our sin makes us dirty. It stains us and it makes us guilty before the God who is holy and pure. And that's not good. Sins, transgression, iniquity, it, it separates us from God. Think about, think about the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve. They were created very good. And then God dwelled with them in the midst of the garden in a perfectly intimate relationship. Until Genesis 3, when sin is introduced and their relationship is ruptured. What sin brings is the opposite of happiness. Instead of contentment, sin breeds perpetual discontentment. Instead of producing well-being, Sin brings unsoundness to a person. Sin brings misery to our lives. 
But God meets our threefold rebellion with threefold mercy. Look again at verses 1 and 2. What does David say? Transgressions are forgiven. Sins are covered. Iniquity is not counted against the blessed man. And the, the, the word that's translated there is forgiven in other contexts carries with it the idea of a lifting off or a, or a taking away. Uh, so I enjoy going backpacking. Backpacking, if you don't know, is uh, putting a bunch of stuff in a backpack, going out to the woods and staying there for a few days. Uh, you hike around, you camp, it's delightful. My wife doesn't really understand what I love so much about it, but I love it. So when I go backpacking, my pack 25 or 30 pounds of stuff in it. And so, you know, I hike 10, 12, 15 miles a day maybe. And after a while, my back starts to hurt. My pack gets heavy and I get fatigued. My, my bones sometimes start to feel weak. If I'm not careful, I start to walk kind of slouched over, not like I'm supposed to because of everything that's on my back. And one of the best things about getting to camp after a long day of hiking is lifting up the backpack, taking it off, and putting it down on the side. Then I can stand up straight, kind of wiggle, get all the crunches out, and I can move normally again. With the burden of the pack lifted off, I can live like I'm supposed to and go about setting up camp and doing what I need to do. And that's, that's something of the picture that David hints at here. Transgressions weigh down on us such that after a while, you can't function properly with them. But, but when, when our God takes away, when he lifts off the burden of our transgressions, we can live rightly. We can go about walking normally like we were meant to. So happy, satisfied, content is the man whose transgression God has taken away, lifted off. David also says that God covers sin. Our rejections of God and his law are recorded in eternity. And that record sheet should condemn us now and forever. If that record was held against us, if we had to deal with it on our own, we'd be rightly condemned to an eternal life apart from God. That, friends, is the ultimate sort of anti-blessing. But blessed is the man whose sins God covers so that they're not charged against us any longer. And this brings us to the third idea of God not counting the effects of sin against us. You and I count people's sins against them. Whether we think we do or not, we do. Think about someone who lies to you. They, they tell you a lie, straight-faced, bold-faced lie. You find out about it, and what do you do? You think, ah, that person is untrustworthy. And you count that untrustworthiness against them such that in the future, you're not going to say the same things to them. You're not going to trust them in the way that you did before. And so God has every reason to count our iniquities against us in the same way. Our sin makes us dirty. He is pure. Our sin makes us ritually unclean in God's sight. He's holy. Our iniquity and God's holiness don't match up. They don't mix, and that's part of why our relationship with him is ruptured. And when your iniquity is counted against you, you can't live with God like you were created to. But, blessed, happy, content, satisfied even, is the man against whom the Lord counts 
no iniquity. So David begins his psalm with a declaration that it's good. It's good for us to be forgiven. When the trinity of our sin is met with the trinity of God's mercy, we can experience well-being and contentment in this life. Having said that, David goes on to give us an object lesson from his own life. This is the suffering of sin. If I was to sum up verses 3 and 4 in a single phrase, it would be that sin brings suffering. Sin brings suffering. And what allows it to bring suffering? Look there at verse 3. For when I kept silent, silence is sin's breeding ground. Satan wants you to sin in secret, and then Satan wants you to stay secret about your sin. Because, right, no one could have possibly done what you've done. No one could have possibly sinned like you've sinned. No one could possibly be facing the temptations that you are. Friends, this is not true. That is a lie from the pits of hell. And if you think either of those things, God speaks to you. First, if you think that your sin is totally unique, the author of Ecclesiastes says that there's nothing new under the sun. Your sin's not new. Your sin's not that special. Other people have sinned like you, and they're struggling like you. Right now, probably even in this room. So you're not going to surprise God if you confess your sin to him. Second, if you think it's better to stay quiet about your sin because God probably just doesn't want to hear about it. God probably doesn't want to think about those things just like you don't want to think about those things. Well, if this is you, hear these words from Jesus in Luke 5. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came from heaven to earth for the express purpose of calling sinners to repentance. He's interested in dealing with your sin because he's interested in loving you. So you're not alone. You don't have to stay silent in your sin. Staying silent in your sin only leads to suffering. Now, maybe you haven't had an affair and committed murder, but I don't think that any of us in this room lack a story like David's. We know the feeling of sinning against God or someone else and then the conviction that follows from it. Maybe you've had a fight with someone, you've lashed out at them in anger, and then afterwards you go on to the next thing you have to do, but but you can't focus because that sinful action keeps coming back to mind. You know you confess, but you you know you should confess, but you don't. Perhaps you're racked with feelings of guilt because of what you thought when you looked at that person. You want to make up for it, but you know deep down that you can't do that. Students, maybe you borrowed an answer from someone at the desk next to you on that test, and now, after the fact, you're trying to justify it in your mind. But you can't really come up with an answer that puts your mind to rest. Maybe you're stuck in sinful habits and God feels far away from you this morning such that you'd rather be anywhere but right here in the seat. You'd rather just ignore these problems 
But church, that's only going to lead to more suffering. That's only going to make worse the suffering that your sin is already causing you. And why is this? We've been created in the image of God. Every human being has an innate sense of what God requires of us. We know how we ought to live, and we know that things don't go well for us when we don't live that way. So if we sin and don't confess it, we start to waste away. That's what David says. He's wasting away. Have you ever experienced this sort of wasting away? Maybe, probably, from sin. I have experienced a different kind of wasting away. Well, I've experienced that kind too. But a different kind of wasting away is under the sun of the summer. I referee soccer. I've done it for a long time in North Carolina where I'm from. Uh, Summer is like winter, kind of the inverse of Pennsylvania winter. Pennsylvania winter is too cold to be out in and it lasts for too long. North Carolina summer is too hot to be out in, and it also lasts for too long. So, refing soccer, a five-day-long tournament. The first couple days, like, I'm great. I'm fast. I'm making good calls. I think. Not many other people think so. (laughs) But then what happens? A few days go on, and day two and a half, day three, I have a little less power in my sprints. I'm not as quick to my whistle. My legs start to hurt. My skin gets burnt, not because I'm not wearing sunscreen, but because it just all gets sweated off. My body starts to waste away, and by the end of the tournament, the best I can do is to get in my car, go home, lay down on the couch, and stay there for a few days. And after a few days, my body starts to recover. But this is where the illustration breaks down, because the same is not true for us in our sin. An unrepentant heart changes you down to your very bones, David says. The most solid thing about you starts to waste away. That's what David experienced. Day and night, he feels God's hand of conviction heavy on him. He's wasting away to the core of his beings. Friends, if you feel God's hand of conviction heavy on you this morning, don't ignore it. If you try to ignore it, if you don't pay attention, your strength will dry up, and you will continue to suffer under the weight of your sin. So not all suffering is caused by sin. Jesus says that. The book of Job shows us that. But all sin does cause suffering. Not all suffering is caused by sin, but David says to us that all sin causes suffering. So what do we do? Well, we turn with David from suffering to salvation in verse 5. David wises up. Nathan confronts him. He wises up, and he knows he needs to confess to the Lord. Now, what does David do when he confesses? First, he acknowledges his sin to God. He calls it what it is, and he owns up to it. God, I have, I have missed the mark of your law. Number two, he doesn't cover it. He doesn't try to blame shift. He doesn't say, oh, it was her fault. No, he owns up to it. And finally, he confesses his transgression to the Lord. God, I rebelled against you and your law, and I know that it makes me unclean. So David gives an honest and a comprehensive confession to God, and then what? Look at verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God forgives him. David's transgressions, his sins, his iniquity are totally and completely 
forgiven. And what does it mean that God forgives our sin? Have you ever thought about that? Can you give me a one-line definition? Well, God gives us a one-line definition in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity. Well, what do I mean by that? And I will remember their sin no more. So when God forgives us, he sees our sin. He calls it out for the ugly, dirty, heinous thing that it is. And then he promises not to remember it anymore. He doesn't count it against us. Sin is no longer the basis of God's wrath against us. It's no longer the cause of a separation between us and him. So David confesses his sin and God remembers it no more. Now, before we move on, just a brief aside. Uh, I'm a musician. I have a degree um, in music. I'm a singer. I play some piano. Uh, so I want to point out a musical term. Okay? It's selah. If you're looking at your Bible, it's probably all the way over to the right, maybe in like italics or something. Um, remember, this is a teaching song. And so selah, it seems, indicates a spot for like a break. Maybe a musical break when these were originally put to song. Or maybe just an interlude for, for us to think about what has been said. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. Is there a sin that I've been silent about? Am I wasting away because of it? And you know, many of the songs that we sing do the same thing. And man, y'all sing, and I like that. Uh, I get excited when churches sing. Typically, we'll sing a verse and then a chorus and then what? A little bit of time for some music to get us back to the next verse. So can I encourage you to make use of the Selah moments in our songs? In the songs that you sing, don't just wait for the people up front to start singing. Think about what you've just said. What do you need to repent of because of it? Do you believe what you've just said? Do you need to ask God for faith in this moment? What sort of a difference is it going to make it work this week? So make good use of the Selahs in the Psalms and those moments in the songs that we sing together as a church. All right, moving on. We've talked about the blessing of forgiveness and the suffering of sin and the salvation that comes by way of confession. And now we come to the promise of life with God. First thing David does in verse 6 is he offers a call to enter into this life with God. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So this is David's version of an altar call. I'm from the south. Altar calls are common. I don't know about them up here. But, but the preacher, after he gets some preaching, says, Hey, come up and repent if you need to. Come up and accept Jesus if you need to. And this is what David's doing, more or less, He's made his point, he's laid out his sermon, and now he's saying, take care of your business with God and do it now. Do it this day. If God's hand is heavy upon you, if you're wasting away under the weight of your sin, confess it. God will forgive you. You just have to come confess. Now, in, in this poetry, David is saying that there's a day when God's forgiveness will no longer be available to sinners. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. But today is not that day, David says. Addressing God's people 
David says, I've been where you are. I know what you're feeling. Come confess to God because I know he will forgive you. Do it while you can because you don't know what tomorrow brings. Instead of lamenting the conviction of God upon them, the person who does confess to the Lord, who does come when the Lord may be found, can say this. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. There it is. There it is again. The life of confession is the life of communion with God. It's life like we were meant to live it. Instead of being weighed down by God's presence, David can now say, God is my hiding place. Confessing your sin to God lets you come back into right relationship with your Father. So the life of confession is the life of communion with God. That is a promise of God to us this morning. Now, what's going on in verses 8 and 9? I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Is this David talking? Is this God talking? Is this someone else talking and just jumping into David's psalm? I think this is God talking. We have some other examples of God breaking in in the first person in the Psalms, and I think this is it. So God, the ultimate author, inspiring David to write what he's writing, is now breaking into the foreground. He's stepping forward and making a promise to his people. He's making a promise to walk with all those who come to him, to guide them, to teach them, to be their God, and he will be their people. That is covenant language. That's promise of God language. And this is the promise of life with God. Our God doesn't call us to confess and then say, like, hey, man, hope you figure it out. See you in heaven. No, no, when God calls his people to himself, he pledges himself to us. He says, I will be your teacher. I will be your guide. I will be your God. Don't act like an animal who has no moral understanding or moral agency. I'll teach you where to go. I'll show you. When you confess your sin, I'll forgive you. When you make me your hiding place, I will teach you and show you where to go so that you don't get stuck in that cycle of sin and suffering and silence again. I will counsel you towards the life of contentment and well-being. That's what God promises to us this morning. Finally, verses 10 and 11, or in verse 10, David gives a summary of, of the whole psalm. He says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, Remember, guys, it's not good, it's not satisfying, it's not good for your well-being to sin and silent and keep it secret. Life apart from God is not the good life that you're searching for. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. When you come to God, when you come to God trusting that he will forgive your sin, his steadfast covenant love surrounds you. It envelops you. It holds you and it keeps you. 
And that reality, that life, as you were created to live it, culminates in one thing, David says, rejoicing. He says, be glad, this is verse 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. By God's grace, those who come to him from their sin are taken from silent suffering and brought into loud rejoicing. That's the transition that God offers us now. Silent suffering to loud, loud rejoicing. So, What's David saying to us? Confess your sin to God because it's blessed to be forgiven. Now, nowhere in this psalm does David say that we do anything to earn God's forgiveness. We don't work our way through our confession to merit God forgiving us. We don't do penance to cleanse away our iniquity. Now, what David speaks of in this psalm is what we call justification by faith alone. In Romans 4, Paul is giving his like, great treatise on justification by faith apart from works. And he quotes David in, these, in this psalm. He could have gone anywhere else in the Old Testament and he quotes David here to prove that we're justified, we're counted right by God by faith alone. So after he talks about how Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis, Paul quotes David. I'll start a verse before the quote. This is Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So to the one who doesn't try to earn his salvation from God but believes that God will save him on his own, his faith is counted as righteousness. Going on, this is Paul, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And this is the quote, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So how does a holy God count sinful people righteous? How does he forgive our sin apart from our works? Well, in Colossians, Paul says that God the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption. What's redemption? The forgiveness of our sin. The forgiveness of our sin comes in and through Christ. Think about Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about the privileged point in history that we stand. David knew that God forgives sinners. We know how God forgives sinners. God the Almighty offers us redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians. So while David says that it's blessed to be forgiven, we can go farther than that. We can say it's blessed to be in Christ Jesus. Confess your sins to God because it's blessed to be in Christ. That's what we were meant for. Confess your sins to God because it's blessed to be forgiven. How then should we live? What difference does it make? Great, cool. It's good to be forgiven. That's how I get contentment. What does it, make? What does it mean now? 
three, three actions for us to take this week in light of God's word. Number one, confess. Confess your sin to God. This comes straight from our text. The peace through Jesus that God offers is available to each one of us today. If you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, if you've never confessed your sin to God, but you can tell that you're not really living the way that you were meant to, follow David's lead. Offer a prayer to God, right now even, acknowledging your sin, not trying to cover up or blame other people for what you've done, and confessing your transgressions to the Lord. Be honest with God about who you are and what you've done. He will forgive you. This, this God, this book, is offering you a life like you were meant to live it. Friends, if you have never confessed your sin to God, do it now at a time where he may be found. Now this call to confession is also for those of us who have claimed the name of Jesus. Look with me at verse 2, the last line of it. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does David say about people who've been forgiven? We don't have to lie and act like we're not sinners still. We can be honest with who we are. We can embrace the salvation that is in Jesus and simultaneously say, Lord, I sinned against you just there. We can fight against our flesh and fight to obey the Lord while still being honest with God about who we are. And we do this knowing that it's the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that works in us to apply sanctification to us, to make us more like Jesus. And that process, it's going to keep going on and on and on until we reach glory. And so, until we reach glory, we are going to need to confess our sins to the Lord. And we don't do this to, to get saved again. We do it to restore the relationship. We do it to restore our relationship with God. So Christian, when you sin, confess your sin to God. And he will forgive you. Confess. That's number one. Number two, if you've confessed, once you've confessed, obey the Lord. Eugene Peterson says that repentance is the biblical word describing the no we say to the lies of the world and the yes we say to God's truth. So repentance is where confession and obedience meet together. Once we've said our no to sin, we should say yes to God's commands. Why? Because they're given for our good. God's commands are promises for the blessed life, promises for well-being and contentment. Don't be like the horse or the mule without understanding. God promises to instruct you in the way that you should go. So obey his instruction. Confess, obey. Number three, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. One author describes joy as our animated response to the breakthrough of heaven into earth. 
Heaven has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He has earned our redemption. Our forgiveness comes to us by means of his blood. So those of us who have confessed and have been forgiven now live in Christ. Can I, can I say, earlier I mentioned two groups of people. You don't like thinking about your sin. All you do is think about your sin. If all you do is think about your sin, can I encourage you? Rejoice. If you have confessed to the Lord, rejoice in the blessed life that he gives to you today. Forgiven people can be glad people because Christ is our sacrifice and God is our hiding place. Forgiven people can be glad people because we've been justified by faith alone and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So church, confess your sins to God this morning because it is blessed to be forgiven in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending Christ to purchase our redemption. Son of God, thank you for coming to be our sacrifice. Spirit, thank you for applying that work to our lives so that we might live lives of well-being and contentment. I pray, God, that you would, you would give us boldness and give us the faith to confess our sins to you, even today. King Jesus, we're grateful that you have paid the price for our sins so that we can live in confidence and gladness now that God is our hiding place if we've confessed our sins to him. Spirit, work this word down into our beings this afternoon and this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.